I have made a terrible error. War is on the horizon, and I've yoked myself to yet another tyrant with bloody ambitions, who has no intention of ever letting me leave. He's slightly elusive. You have his art, and then you're kind of left to slightly infer who he was. Leonardo da Vinci, to me, was just a human being with a great passion that he was lucky enough to find out what it was and to really sacrifice everything and dedicate his life to making that great passion flourish. I mean, he's one of the great geniuses in the history of humanity. And he created beautiful, beautiful things that have contributed to my country that I love. <laughs> it's impossible to mention Leonardo da Vinci without thinking of the Mona Lisa. And episode six of the drama is where we meet Lisa del Giocondo, the real person behind that transfixing painted smile. And right here is where we'll meet Maria Vera Ratti, the Italian actor tasked with bringing Lisa to life on screen. So they just dyed my eyebrows really light, like really light blonde. And then I had a huge wig, of course, and then I had a lot of layers of clothes everywhere. And then, oh, and then I had like brown contact lenses, of course. Another memorable character arrives on the scene as well, the menacing and mighty Cesare Borgia, played by Max Bennett. I've played a lot of villains in the past, but you can't really conceive of them as villains. You have to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And... I mean, he wouldn't see himself as a villain. He'd see himself as someone who's trying to resurrect the glory of the Roman Empire. The developing political situation with Borgia coincides with Leonardo's developing how maps are drawn. Da Vinci's much-praised map of Imola, the art focus for episode six, is held as part of the Royal Collection Trust at Windsor Castle, and we'll learn all about it from its curator. It's the largest Leonardo drawing that we have at Windsor. It's about two feet wide. It's... A such a striking work because of its size but also because of its rigor the fact that it's placed within a perfectly circumscribed circle about a foot and a half across that it's colored with yellow and green and blue and brown washes which very few of leonardo's drawings are Creators of the Leonardo drama, Steve Thompson and Frank Spotnitz, had some time up close and personal with the map of Imola, and we'll hear from them how affecting da Vinci's work still is centuries after it was created. Plus, Aidan Turner, our on-screen Leonardo, returns to talk about criticism in art at the time of da Vinci. I wonder about back then how it would be, would he still, being as famous as he was during his time, how criticism would have worked? Would people have been critical openly to him would he have read it because i think a lot of us care deeply even if we try to wear wear it on us even go you know this isn't because i don't do social media but actually it's probably it's a security thing i don't want to do because i don't want to read that sort of stuff and i think it might upset me if i did but first talking of emotions there's a lot going on for da vinci at the dawn of the 16th century my master cesare borgia has a noble vision to bring together the warring factions of this land by installing himself as ruler Oh, but that's extremely noble of him. My master seeks holy peace. But he's willing to burn and loot towns and string men up to achieve it. I'm Angelica Bell, and this is Leonardo, the official podcast, episode six. 
1502 is the year that Leonardo da Vinci turns 50 years old and gets a new patron, Cesare Borgia. He also encounters Niccolò Machiavelli, the famous diplomat, philosopher and writer, as their paths meet in the northern Italian city of Imola. And da Vinci witnesses firsthand the cruelty and military strength of Borgia as the Italian wars rage on. As we see in the drama, Leonardo has to confront the impact of his work as he's tasked with inventing weapons to kill on mass scale. His fame continues to grow and within a year, in 1503, da Vinci begins work on what's now regarded as his infamous masterpiece, the Mona Lisa. He was having some trouble capturing my image. <laughs> he had the same problem with me. Da Vinci spent 20 years under the patronage of the Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, but could barely make it through a year with Cesare Borgia as his patron. At this stage of our story, it's useful to remember how much of da Vinci's work revolved around engineering and weaponry. Historian and author Catherine Fletcher has the knowledge. Today, I come before you as an engineer. How revelatory were Leonardo's weaponry inventions? Oh, well, Leonardo's really, really interested in the latest weapons technology. So one of the things we find in his notebooks is a design for a very new type of handgun. This is what you call a wheel lock handgun, and it's the first type of gun that can be used for concealed carry. So it's a type of gun that rather than needing a lighted match to um, set the gunpowder off, you can fire it with a mechanism that basically self-lights the gunpowder. That means you can conceal it under your cloak. So we know that Leonardo was taking an interest in this developing technology. He designs all these kind of multi-barreled guns, which don't seem to have been used in very practical circumstances of warfare. But certainly, again, he's taking an interest. When he pitches for work to the Duke of Milan, one of the things he really highlights is his skills in military technology. I mean, he has a, a 10-point letter. He gets to nine points, which all about, you know, how good he is at warfare. And then only on number 10 does he get on to it. By the way, I can also do, you know, art and architecture for you in peacetime, if you'd like. Um, so this is a big part of his selling point. I have ideas here for defences for your city. If you'd like to take a look. So first we have... Uh, this is a mechanism for pushing siege ladders away from walls. This here is a mobile cannon. It protects the people inside with uh, armour on, on, on the outside. But actually where it really, really comes into his own, and we have sort of concrete evidence for it, is in his mapping. So he draws this very perfect map of um, the city of Imola for Cesare Borgia when Cesare is planning an invasion. And that's a revolutionary mapping technique on Leonardo's part, but it's also in the service of somebody's military project. So sometimes these artistic skills, technological skills are being put to quite dubious ends, really. He wants weapons. Engines of war. Niccolò was right. He seduced you with his flattery. This cannot be your legacy. Oh, I have to check him out. It's the only way I can buy passage to our freedom. And do you think he wrestled with that? Because obviously he's coming up with devices that can kill people. Yeah. I mean, there's a really fascinating scene. He sort of writes a treatise on how to paint a battle. 
And in that description of what a battle looks like, it's extremely vivid. He talks about war as being a brutal madness. Now, there obviously is some contradiction between saying war is a brutal madness and being quite critical in some of his little notebook writings about guns and their destructive properties. And on the other hand, then actually you know, pitching to the Duke as a guy who's good at producing weaponry, good at siege techniques, good at building fortresses and so on. But I think that's perhaps a bit of a, a needs must. I want a patron who's going to support me. So I'm prepared to give him what he wants. But also I have real reservations about um, the way that the wars are going. Your Lordship, you're right. I don't have a passion for war. But I do have a passion for art. Did he create anything that we use for combat today that we're still using? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, a lot of those sort of, you know, the, the multi-barreled guns are actually things that in one form or another, yeah, you see in modern combat. You see things, I mean, that that basic wheel lock mechanism, the concealed gun, I mean, that is still a very live issue. I mean, it was a, it was a live issue in Italy 500 years ago. Should people be allowed to carry these guns under their cloaks? They actually banned them a lot of places. I mean, it, you you go to Texas today, they're still having that argument about concealed carry um, of weapons. And, you know, that, that continues to be a real kind of social issue that was a social issue then. It's, it's the same thing now. A weapon such as the world has never seen. You don't seem pleased by it. No, Your Excellency. I'm not proud of this. If you're following along with the drama, then you will have met Max Bennett on screen playing Cesare Borgia. But now let's get to know him and his historical character much better. What's your name? I'm Max Bennett, and I play Cesare Borgia. Who was that? He was the illegitimate son of Pope Alexander VI. So he kind of he had quite a few illegitimate children, but was always very proud of them and owned up to them. So he was like a, a warlord, I guess, a warrior at the turn of the century, at the sort of start of the 1500s. He was an incredibly powerful, ambitious warrior who wanted to have this huge vision of kind of uniting Italy and kind of resurrecting the glory of the Roman Empire, but basically with him as the head. And so when his father was Pope, he kind of leveraged that influence and money and power and, and sort of set off on these huge military campaigns that were pretty innovative, I think, at the time. The wars of the Red Fort are old. They would never withstand a siege. No. We must redesign them to strengthen our defences. Can you do it? The research that I did on him was incredibly fascinating all round. He was such a such a fascinating character and the boldness, I guess, of some of his interactions and I would I would guess you'd describe them as power plays or his understanding of human nature is a slightly animalistic one. He has an instinct where he can he knows what buttons to push and what to go after and he's pretty ruthless. There's a story, I mean, it's rumoured whether it actually happened or not, but people seem fairly confident that Juan, his brother, was kind of Alexander VI, his father's favourite, and he was kind of jealous of this, and basically he seems to have killed his brother. Nobody can confirm it or not, and there was another rival family, the Orsini, who were so powerful at the time, and it was kind of blamed on them. But the ambition that he has extends to that 
that level is quite quite that was quite a shocking uh, revelation. Borgia is such a looming presence at this time and has remained so throughout history. Well, he is somebody who is power obsessed and he becomes the focus of or one of the central characters in Machiavelli's The Prince. He's the inspiration for it. And actually, Machiavelli's sort of much maligned kind of in our contemporary culture. We conceive of him as this sort of, you know, very plotting, cunning sort of almost evil archetype but actually really he's he's a pragmatist and his advice to rulers is based on trying to minimize the amount of pain in order to hold on to your power so you know borgia becomes a model for his lots of his theories about whether it's better to be loved or feared and you know everybody thinks oh he just wants to inspire fear but actually he sort of said well if you want to hold on to your power it's probably safer to be feared. It's nice if you can be loved as well, but if you had to choose, you choose to be feared and that's certainly what Borgia does is he inspires this fear and knows that he's a pure pragmatist and he kind of doesn't have notions of conventional morality in that sense. So, yeah, it, it's hard to put a label of evil or this because he doesn't really conceive of it that way. Cruelty has its value. I've played a lot of villains in the past, but you can't really conceive of them as villains. You have to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And, I mean, he wouldn't see himself as a villain. He'd see himself as someone who's trying to resurrect the glory of the Roman Empire. You admire him. You admire what he's done. I admire his purity of spirit. For his family crest, he came up with a slogan that was out Caesar, out nihil, which in, in, in Latin means either Caesar or nothing, which is kind of, he's aligning himself with the great emperors of history. So, you know, he, he thinks of himself as a hero, not a villain, I think. I, I don't understand it. He, he's your finest soldier, your most loyal. Everyone will see that I was willing to sacrifice him. Everyone will know that I am willing to do the unthinkable. They will all tremble at my name. It is true that Borgia did have his right-hand man, Romero Dorco, executed in full view of the public in a gruesome show of his power. Totally. And, you know, that particular example was quite famous. And, you know, when he was conquering the Romagna region through the sort of northeastern central part of Italy, the previous rulers in those areas, they were cruel for cruel's sake. And, you know, they were seen as just taking money as, as levies and filling their coffers, etc. So he installed Ramiro in order to be cruel. He was a particularly cruel character. And then as soon as there was something that he could be blamed for, he set him up as an example. And it was kind of the perfect way of establishing that fear that he needed. He kind of said, well, all that cruelty that's happened isn't me. It's my right-hand man and, you know, look how close he is. And then killing him is such an example to people that, of course, it, it was incredibly shocking. It was the one thing that really established his control over the region, actually. Nicola, he's killed him. He's killed Romero. Yes, everyone knows and everyone is terrified, just as he intended. You have to get me away from here. Leonardo has the skills that Borgia needs, but Borgia is also playing Leonardo through his patronage and also threats to his hometown and Florence. And it's a big game, really, of people trying to get what they want and being washed up in the desires of others. You truly wish to go home? 
Design a weapon that will slaughter a hundred souls. That is the only way that you will buy your own soul back. It is interesting and somewhat uncomfortable to think that one of the most precious pieces of da Vinci's art, the map of Imola, was created as a necessary document for war. Yet its detail and bird's eye view approach also transformed mapping into something far more scientific than it had ever been before. So let's zoom in on that map now with the person responsible for preserving it for future generations. Who is it? I'm Martin Clayton, I'm Head of Prints and Drawings for Royal Collection Trust and I'm based in the print room at Windsor Castle. We think it was acquired by King Charles II and that was probably around 1670. What's distinctive about the collection is that all this, this huge group of drawings, these 550 drawings by Leonardo, have been together as a group since his death. It's not a collection that's been brought together by a collector who's gone out seeking individual works. Leonardo was very keen to preserve his collection of papers. He kept thousands of sheets and dozens of notebooks together throughout his life, and when he died in France in 1519, he bequeathed all his drawings and notebooks to his favourite pupil, Francesco Melzi. Melzi treasured those drawings and tried to put them into some sort of order. When he died around 1570, his son inherited them, but he soon passed them on to a collector, Pompeo Leone, a sculptor, who was fascinated by Leonardo. And Leone bound them into at least two very large albums, one of which consisted of most of Leonardo's scientific and mechanical studies, the other of which consisted of Leonardo's, what Leone saw of as his artistic studies. And when Leone died in 1608, those two albums went in two different directions. The scientific drawings went to the Biblioteca Ambrosiana in Milan, where they are to this day, the Codex Atlanticus it's called. The album, the smaller album of artistic drawings, was in England by 1630. We don't know how it came to England, but it was in the collection of Thomas Howard, uh, Earl of Arundel, who was equally fascinated with Leonardo. He had one of the greatest collections of drawings in Europe in the 17th century. And when Arundel left England during the English Civil War in the 1640s, we don't, again, know what happened to the album. I believe it was in the possession of his, uh, his grandson, Henry Howard, and... Very likely, I think, after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, in thanks for the restitution of the, the Norfolk lands and titles, Howard, I believe, though I have no documentary evidence for this, but I believe gave this album to King Charles II, along with an album of Holbein's, which is still at Windsor as well. So the album has passed through only four hands between Leonardo's death and entering the royal collection around 1670. It's been very well looked after during those 500 years and that's why the drawings in the album are in such fantastic condition and why they are all still together as a group 502 years later. That's fascinating. You may recall in an earlier episode Martin was explaining why so many of Leonardo da Vinci's drawings and paintings are so small in real life and the map of Imola is no exception even if it looms large when viewed as part of Leonardo's collected artwork. It's the largest Leonardo drawing that we have at Windsor. It's about two feet wide. It's such a striking work because of its size, but also because of its rigor. The fact that it's placed within a perfectly circumscribed circle about a foot and a half across. 
that it's coloured with yellow and green and blue and brown washes, which very few of Leonardo's drawings are. The fact that it is executed to a far greater degree of detail than was necessary for a map. Um, and so it has this obsessive quality that you see in many of Leonardo's greatest creations. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right. It has a sense of objectivity beyond any other map of the period. And because it's in a circle, and because it's shown as a perfect ground plan, actually a section, it's not a ground plan, you're not looking down on roofs. If you can imagine taking a slice through Imola a few feet from the ground, and so you're seeing the section of every building, every church in there. So it has this objective sense, almost as if you're looking down from a sort of spy satellite onto the town of Imola. And that sense of, of objectivity, of dispassionate observation, and pure geometry gives it a really compelling quality. If you're connected to the Earth, it's impossible to see with God's eyes. I need to draw the city from the air. Now, we know that it was executed in probably October 1502, so Leonardo was 50 years old when he made it. He'd entered the service of Cesare Borgia that summer as his architect and engineer, military architect and engineer. And he was given the freedom to requisition men for surveying purposes, to order improvements to any fortifications. And he was touring the towns of Emilia-Romagna, the marches that Cesare had conquered in the previous year or so, making surveys of the fortifications of towns such as Cesena and Forli and Rimini, and he may well have made large maps of those other towns that Cesare had conquered as well. But Imola is the only map uh, that survives that he made for Cesare. And it shows the existing fortifications in great detail. It doesn't show any suggestions as to how those fortifications can be improved. But the fact that it shows the rest of the town as well, that it shows all the houses and the boundaries of their backyards and the churches and monasteries and so on, is a little puzzling, because that cannot have been of interest to Cesare. He was only interested in what the fortifications looked like. So it's, it's a little bit of a mystery as to why Leonardo went so far in the details of this map. It has some annotations down the side that describes the distance to nearby towns, the compass point and how far to go to Bologna and Forli and Cesena and so on. Uh, but that's written in Leonardo's mirror writing. You know, he's left-handed, he writes all his notes in perfect mirror image. So that was only for him to see. Whereas the fact that the map was coloured suggests that it was done for Cesare, to show Cesare. So whether it's something that Leonardo did to unfold and to, to place in front of Cesare, rather than to give to him and leave with him, is, is a little unknown. The fact that we still have it at Windsor shows that it remained in his papers, and so it clearly it didn't go into Cesare's hands. Leonardo must have kept hold of it. So there are a number of things that we, we don't quite know about the map of Imola. Its purpose, what happened to it immediately. But it must, from the colouring, presumably have been laid in front of Cesare in October 1502, while Cesare was in occupation of Imola. Is this Imola from above? It is. I can see the entire city at a glance. I've never seen anything like it before. How have you done this? He served the Florentine Republic in the early years of the 16th century, but it seems quite likely that Leonardo was 
almost given a diplomatic gift to Cesare by the Florentine government with Machiavelli, none other than Niccolò Machiavelli, as the go-between. Machiavelli was the ambassador, the Florentine ambassador to Cesare's court, and they paid Cesare 30,000 gold ducats a year as protection money, essentially, so that Cesare didn't invade Florentine territory. Each city living under his protection is required to pay him 30,000 florins. Protection money. And it may well be that Leonardo was given as a, as a little bauble, a little, a, a little extra to Cesare by the Florentines. You were sent here merely to appease him. And Leonardo knew that Cesare was, was sailing pretty close to the wind. And, you know, ultimately he, he fell himself just a couple of years later. So Leonardo's service of Cesare was just just a way of earning a living for himself. He had no romantic notions about the divine right of kings. He, he was serving Cesare because Cesare was a powerful patron who could pay his wages. I'm offering you the greatest canvas you've ever painted. I'm at your command. I'm Angelica Bell, and you're listening to Leonardo, the official podcast. Dearest Caterina, yesterday, while walking in the market, I witnessed an event that made my blood run cold. There is a lot more intrigue around Caterina still to come in the drama and in this podcast. But just before we hear more about the other woman that dominates episode six, the Mona Lisa, what does it feel like to witness the historic map of Imola firsthand? Show creators and writers Steve Thompson and Frank Spotnitz got to do just that, with a private viewing of the Da Vinci work as part of their show research. Steve explains what it felt like to be so close to Leonardo's art and how it inspired them. I mean, it's extraordinary because, as you know, each episode centres around the struggle or the journey to create one piece of art. And uh, one of the scripts I wrote was episode six, and Borgia, Cesare Borgia, persuaded him to you know, build these new battlements and defences for the city. And the first thing he did was create a map. And it was actually the first time in history anybody had created an aerial map, a bird's eye view of a city. Nobody had been able to conceive of it before. And if you look at all the old maps prior to this time, they're all side views. You're looking at, there's a very famous old map of London, and actually you're looking at it from south of the Thames across the river, and you're seeing all the buildings as a side view. It's just not a true depiction of the city, look. Looks all right to me. Some of the buildings are missing. What are you talking about? They're obscured. A map can't keep secrets. Leonardo was the first person to say, what if I were a bird and could see this whole city from the air? What would it look like? And he invented new machines in order to map the streets and create this bird's eye view, this aerial plan view of the entire city. It took you long enough, but congratulations. You've made a new kind of biro. Il Valentino will be thrilled. <laughs> you can see what's happening here, right? As we walk, the wheel revolves. The balls drop down so we can measure perfect distances. All right. We spent you know, months talking about this episode and months looking at books and months looking at colour plates of the map of Emila. And then one evening we strolled into Buckingham Palace and there it was, the real map of Emila that had been created by him behind glass in a room and it's absolutely gasp making because you know this is the guy who actually drew it there it is we, you know it's, it had become a myth in our world 
And it wasn't on its own. It was surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of other sketches we had been talking about. But the map of Emma Lewis, the one that will stick in my mind because, you know, there it was, the document that had created the future of cartography. It is astonishing. And everything is beautiful, even if it's not intended to be art, even if it's just his backward writing mm. or, you know, drawing a gear or something. Everything is just astonishingly beautiful. It looks great. And for Frank and Steve, was there one piece of art they spent more time staring at than any other for this show? Well, for me, I have to say it was the Imola moment, the map, simply because, uh, you know, I'd spent about a month writing the script about it and we'd talked about it so much, Frank and I talked about it so much and we'd been flicking through the books looking at it. I mean, it's a really funny thing because there are there are so many facsimiles. We, we spoke to a lot of art historians and one guy came along, a brilliant art historian who spoke to us and he brought along facsimiles of Leonardo's notebooks. Somebody has lovingly recreated Leonardo's notebooks page by page and you can now buy these things. They're incredibly expensive. And, and having spent a lot of time with, for want of a better word, fakes or reproductions, there, there is just no substitute for seeing the real thing and knowing that the, the breath of Leonardo was on that document and the hand of Leonardo was on that document and it's just a few millimetres away behind that piece of glass. So for me, it was Imola. There is real power in these drawings. Look. I think for me, I learned the most technically about the paintings of Ginevra da Vinci and The Last Supper, certainly, because there's a whole episode that really is about the, the technical challenge of painting The Last Supper. And that was fascinating. But I think the, the work of art that I enjoyed thinking the most about ended up being, weirdly, the Mona Lisa. She's an interesting subject. When we were thinking about Leonardo's journey, art versus life, and that he was trying to get at beauty through truth. And then this idea that Lisa says to him, well, that's not how you get beauty. You get at it through love, which is the one thing Leonardo hadn't considered. And, you know, this is a love story. The series is a love story. So the idea that that, that smile that still mystifies and fascinates the world is about love. Uh, I, I just thought it was just really a lovely idea that we hit on quite, quite late in the writing. And so, if it's safe to do so, close your eyes for a moment and imagine the Mona Lisa. Even if you haven't had the chance to visit the painting at the Louvre in Paris, chances are you've got a good idea of what it looks like in your head. Lisa is viewed in three-quarter profile much like her predecessor, the Ginevra de Benci, that we heard about in episode two. She's looking out towards you, and she's smiling. Her hands are folded across her lap. There are intricate folds of her sleeves and her robes. Her red-brown hair stretches past her shoulders. Her eyes are also brown, but there are no strongly visible eyebrows or eyelashes. Behind her is an imagined landscape with a lake, winding dirt road and icy blue-green mountains in the distance. But it's her face that draws you in. The look in her eyes and that beguiling smile. Now imagine you're an actor and you've been picked to play the most famous woman ever to be painted. That's what happened to Italian actress Maria Vera Ratti, 
who's here to talk us through her transformation to portray Lisa del Giocondo, best known as the Mona Lisa. We just moved here from the south. We have a new villa in the countryside. No. More space. And you wish to commission a portrait? It looks empty. We have solely of furniture, and I thought, perhaps, an image of my wife. My name is Maria Veraratti. I played the Mona Lisa. Signora, please take a seat for a moment. She was a real woman that existed, Lisa del Giugondo. The way we decided to tell her story was as a woman who has worked towards gaining inner peace uh, in spite of the life that she's had. Forgive me, Madonna, but you are in mourning. Yes, my daughter, Lucrezia. She left us when she was only six months old. I think it all stems from kindness. I mean, from the way she's written, being so wise and so serene, so calm, it just stems from deep kindness and just depth of spirit, which I envy. <laughs> Your eyes shine when you speak of her. I was scared that like my energy would kind of sink into the chair with me because I was sitting all the time. But I think it didn't happen again because I was reacting to such good actors and a good environment, so that really helped. And the clothes, there were a lot of them, <laughs> but they really helped me as well. It was really helpful. I mean, I don't know if I could have done it without the whole hair and clothes to actually, you know, feel truthful to, to what I was living. So basically they wanted to kind of erase my eyebrows and I was on another film so they couldn't shave them off. They had to do this prosthetics thing. So they did it, but then they didn't like it. Uh, they, they just threw it away because they, they thought it was, wasn't very natural. So they just dyed my eyebrows really light, like really light blonde. And then I had a huge wig, of course, and then I had a lot of layers of clothes everywhere. And then, oh, and then I had like brown contact lenses, of course. God takes your child, and yet you smile. Leonardo began work on the Mona Lisa in 1503, but there's continued speculation over how many years he kept going back to it, working on that smile. The Mona Lisa smile was very, very tricky to think about, for sure. <laughs> Gosh, I stressed out about it so much. It's just impossible to recreate. I mean, he couldn't draw it and he couldn't paint it and I, I certainly can't do it. So I was just stressing out about it so much and then I just went there and I said to myself, like, when you get on set, just switch off your brain and just go with the flow. And I don't know, no one complained about it. So hopefully it's not too bad. I'm sorry, Madonna. I'm, I'm not sure I know how to paint you. For Maria, to get the smile right, it did involve much time spent studying her reflection in the mirror. I was kind of recording myself, trying not to look at myself and then do it and then re-watch it, but it wasn't really helpful. I just had to imagine what she was going through, which obviously is up to interpretation. I realised that the more I was focusing on what I was doing with my face, the more I was kind of sucking the whole kind of energy out of it, so I just stopped doing that. It is true, as we hear in the drama, that one of Lisa del Giocondo's children did die as a baby, 
and that pure love she had for her family is depicted on screen as inspiration for Da Vinci. Well, I think it's just such a conflict of emotion, which I think is what makes you fall in love with a character or with a human being as well. It's just a person having mixed feelings about something. That's what's interesting because in life, you know, we, we always want something, but then at the same time, there's something in our way. And sometimes it's usually linked to, you know, mixed feelings, mixed emotions. And I think the painting displays it very, very well. While you may think you know the Mona Lisa from the painting, there is so much to discover about the real woman from history, Lisa del Giocondo, to bring her to life. The directors, both of them, they, they told me about her a lot. A lot of stuff that I didn't, that I had no idea about. And then I went online, of course, and I kind of researched her a little bit. But the text, also the way they wanted to write the character, was a bit different to what you find. Like, it was very specific. So I kind of tried to focus more on what, you know, her monologues and, and the text said. If it is truth you are seeking, then perhaps you are looking in the wrong place. There is only one truth we as mortals can ever hope to know. And that is love. I think what stayed with me about her the most is that I kind of recognize like a certain type of human within her. And it's, so I don't wanna like, I don't wanna, you know, say too much, but the way she was written, it, it was of a woman that she faces life with such peace in spite of everything. And I know people like that. And I kind of paid attention to that particular way of, of facing life and, and obviously, you know, struggles and disappointment and pain. And, and that really kind of made me grow a little bit. I am grateful for the time I had with her. I am so grateful for the memories Suffering brings you closer to God. She kind of reminds me, even though she's not, she kind of reminds me of a nun or a saint because she's just she's so, like, generous as a person. And her way of dealing with her condition kind of made me question certain things. As objects go, the Mona Lisa has many stories of her own to tell, not least the dramatic tale of how the painting was stolen from the Louvre in 1911. It involves someone hiding in a supply closet at the Paris Museum overnight, then prizing the painting, protective glass frame and all off the wall before making a swift exit. Pablo Picasso was an early suspect, even though it turned out he had nothing to do with the theft. It was a further two years before La Gioconda, the Mona Lisa, was recovered and Vincenzo Perugia sent to prison for the crime. In that time, though, the painting had been catapulted to worldwide fame. But as we know, art is subjective. So we wanted to know from our on-screen Leonardo, Aidan Turner, and his co-star Matilda De Angelis, who plays Catalina, whether artistic criticism was something they felt affected Da Vinci when he was alive. It's interesting, isn't it? Like versus today where, you know, unsolicited, you might read criticism that you don't want to read. 
I wonder about back then how it would be. Would he still, being as famous as he was during his time, how criticism would have worked? Would people have been critical openly to him? Would he have read it? Uh, I mean, how protected was he, I wonder, from that? How much did he care? He strikes me as a person who I think, because I think a lot of us care deeply, even if we try to wear wear it on us even go you know this isn't because i don't do social media but actually it's probably it's a security thing i don't want to do because i don't want to read that sort of stuff and i think it might upset me if i did so that's why i think i keep well one of the reasons why i keep a distance from it but i wonder in leonardo's life how that was i mean surely in the earlier days too notoriety meant more work patronage money it allowed him to travel access to maybe pigments you know that he couldn't get or just things you know except you know having apprentices and i just wonder i wonder how how he would have felt about the whole thing whether he would have brushed it off and just trusted himself and his own talent or whether it would have affected him and where you know whether he would have listened to that and and as a result you know disbanded and stopped some of his works or lost confidence or i sort of wonder how that works the difference is also that nowadays we uh compare ourselves to millions of people through Instagrams and social. And like even 30 years ago, it wasn't like that. Nowadays I can open my Instagram and compare myself to hundreds and hundreds of actresses and you know influencers and stuff. And back in the days, if your work was good, it was good. Mm. If it wasn't good, you were nobody. Mm. It was fine. You had to relate and base your confidence on on yourself and just mm. yourself and maybe the king or the michinate that commissioned the work and that was it you can design the production hmm? well you've seen the mask <sighs> take your lead from that i don't understand <laughs> our next entertainment of course i'm so excited you're going to design it for us an opportunity you to prove yourself worthy of my patronage. Next time, another younger, famous painter arrives on the scene as da Vinci finds himself face-to-face working in the same room as Michelangelo. Please, no. you'll have to ask him to leave. Leonardo, how could I resist this offer? The two finest artists in the city, each painting a fresco. Believe me, it will be a great duel between two giants because you are both giants and Florence will be the winner. We'll hear about that relationship and rivalry with Michelangelo and discover more about Leonardo's life, including what we really know about his mother and also his longtime companion and assistant, Salai. He's obviously quite badly behaved in Leonardo's household. Kind of a liar, he's a thief, he caused a lot of trouble. Leonardo obviously has this quite tense relationship with him sometimes, but also he keeps him around. He stays in the household for 25 years. He's a model. He becomes an artist himself, not one really of Leonardo's standard. He kind of famously paints um, a topless version of the Mona Lisa. So he's a bit of a character. This podcast was created by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative in association with Lux Fide. Produced by Natalie Jameson and James Deacon. Edited by Chris Attaway. Sound mix by Mark Pittam. And production support from Barney Lee. Hold up. 